The reading is from Matthew chapter 28. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the Gospel of Christ. Heavenly Father, what a great joy it is to uh, be here together this morning as brothers and sisters in Christ. What a privilege it is to uh, think upon you, our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer. And Father, although it's impossible for us to fully grasp you and your glory and your wonder, you have told us things about yourself which are true and which allow us to know you personally and intimately and we're so thankful for that. And we pray that this morning as we think on this mystery of the Trinity, that it would lead not just to kind of head knowledge, but it would lead to a a deeper love for you, a deeper desire to serve you in your world. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, before I went away, I did the first of a series on the the 39 Articles, and I've written about it in the Weekly Word, so if you're not sure what the 39 Articles are, there's a little bit about it there on the front of the news sheet. Uh, If you're a regular here at St Stephen's, you know that it's our custom to work bit by bit through books of the Bible. That's how we do it, but every now and then we have a break from that and we do a bit of a topical series, and I've decided that in a couple of the, the spots or slots for topical series this year, we'll look at some of the 39 Articles because they are the statements of belief of what our Anglican Church is formed under, uh, framed by. And uh, a few weeks ago we began with Article 6, which was about what? Two people remember. Uh, Yeah, the Bible. It was on the Scriptures. The authority of the Word of God, uh, that, that, that God has spoken to us in his Word and that that's our supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. Well, today we are at number one. This is the first of the 39 articles and it's on the Trinity. And I think I've got it behind me, so um, I'll read it out. It's headed of faith in the Holy Trinity. There is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body, parts or passions, of infinite power, wisdom and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. And in unity of this Godhead, there be three persons, of one substance, power and eternity, the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost. So that's what we're looking at this morning. Uh, I don't know whether you've ever thought about it before. How do you define God? I mean, here is an attempt to put something into words about God. It's not easy because all our words have limitations and misconceptions and trying to convey truth about something as glorious and other as God is very difficult. So when it comes to talking about the Trinity, there's a couple of problems that we've got. One, one problem is it's really hard to talk about the Trinity. There's a reason that the early church took a few hundred years to get the precise language right, because it's tough. But, I hope you and I know, tough things often pay off big time, so let's not be put off by the fact that it's tough, let's get into it. The other big problem, though, with looking at something like the Trinity is it can seem really boring. Really? Trinity? 
Uh, Where's the cash value for my life looking at the Trinity? It can seem like a, a dry, impersonal, dusty doctrine or theology with very little practical implication for living. Can I just say that's nonsense? Any time we're thinking about who God is, that's important. Any time we're growing in our knowledge and understanding and hopefully love of God, that is excellent. Uh, If we're growing in our understanding and knowledge of who God is, then hopefully our relationship with God is getting better and stronger. It's like any relationship that you've got. The better you know that person, then the closer and stronger and more intimate the relationship can be. So we're thinking about who God is today. That's what we're doing. And who he is is hugely important. There's a reason why this one is number one on the 39 Articles. But the Trinity is not just important in the 39 Articles. The Trinity is important in terms of the creeds, the, the common creeds that Christians have held for years and years. Do you remember the, the words of the Nicene Creed? In many ways, the Nicene Creed is based on the Trinity. We believe in one God, what is it? The Father, the Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and it goes on about the Father. And then it goes, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Then we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, dot, dot, dot. So the whole Nicene Creed is based around the Trinity. So this is important stuff that we're looking at. So I want to look at the article itself and there's just a few words there which can be misunderstood because they're, they're, they're technical, they've got a precise kind of meaning. Then we'll think about a couple of uh, more deeper things with the Trinity um, uh, and hopefully pause for a reflection on why that's important for life. But as I said before, there's a reason why the early church took hundreds of years on this to, to formulate its precise statements. We're going to cover it in 20 minutes. Boom. Uh, We're not saying anything new, there's lots more that could be said, but here's hopefully a few important things. You cannot possibly plumb the depth of the Trinity, not even if we had all the time this morning to do it. Uh, As I said before, one of the problems we've got is that human language can't adequately describe the God who at one level is undefinable. Remember when God met Moses at the burning bush and he gives his name? What's his name? I am who I am. What's the significance of that name? He can't be defined. When I, when I introduce myself to you, I normally do it as I'm Jay, uh, married to Jamie, father of Jesse, Molly and Laura, uh, child of Wally and Rowan. You know, however, you, you define it by all sorts of other. God is, I am who I am. Because even if we say he's as strong as the tides, he created the tides by speaking. Although it gives a sense of it, it's not a full sense of it. So it's, we're never going to plumb the depths this morning, but, let's, but God has told us certain truths that are for our good, that we want to hold on to, and that benefit us in life. So let's see what we can say. If you have a look at the statement, there's just a few of the terms which, as I said, are, are kind of technical and have specific meaning. I think we understand it when it says there's only one living, true God, so not a false God, but a true God, everlasting, that means not uh, contained by time. But then it says without body, parts or passions. And you go, well, that's an odd thing to say, without body, parts or passions. But they are technical terms aimed at getting what God, aimed at describing what God isn't. So without body is meaning that he's not limited by space. It's not saying that Jesus wasn't physically in a body, but when it says without body, it's saying he's not limited by space. Without part means that he's indivisible. I'm full of parts. 
Uh, and so my, my right arm could fight against my left leg. I don't know how that would happen, but it could happen. As soon as you've got parts, it could happen. What this is saying is God without parts means he's indivisible. There's no internal conflict. No passions doesn't mean that God's emotionless. In fact, when you read through the scriptures, we see emotion in God. But it means that there's no influence that exerts greater or stronger force upon him than him himself. Does that make sense? I could tell you, uh, I smashed a window because I got angry. And then you go, right, so anger is stronger than Jay. Yep. Not with God. He's without passion in that sense. There's no force, external force, stronger than him. So that's what it means when it's saying the without body, part and passion. I think the rest is pretty self-explanatory, except for substance, and I'll get to that in a moment. But notice there's two key parts to this statement, two main foci. The first part is on the the truth that there is one God, the unity of God, one God. But then the second part, it talks about that one God being three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And this is the element of the Trinity. This is the element that's unique to Christianity. And this is the part which we can't quite get our heads around. But have a think about it for a moment because we need to be really clear on what both these parts are and what they mean. Basic to Jewish understanding, which means basic to how God revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and the the patriarchs and all who came afterwards, was monotheism, that there was only one God. That's very clear in the Old Testament. Uh, You can see it in places like Isaiah 45 verse 5 where God says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me there is no God. Very little wriggle room there. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But even in the Old Testament, there are hints that God is not simple. I mean simple as the opposite of complex. That that God's not simple in that kind of way. Right at the beginning of creation, we're told about the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. Uh, Even more kind of mysteriously, when you read through the Old Testament, there's often a figure who's called the angel of the Lord, who is the angel of the Lord, so distinct from God, and yet when the angel of the Lord speaks, like with Moses at the burning bush, he speaks as if he is God. So straight away we're going, someone that's distinct from God and yet is God almost like the word was with God and was God. So we're getting these kind of uh, hints in the Old Testament that although there's one God that said very clearly, it's not as simple as just that. But then uh, by the time you get to the New Testament, it's very clear because Jesus not only acts with but speaks with the authority of God himself. But the issue we've got is that nowhere in the Bible does it explain all this clearly and concisely. How does this all work? This kind of, there's one God but three persons. In fact, and I'm sure you know this, the word Trinity is never in the Bible. It's not a biblical word. I like it as a word, I'm not against it, but it doesn't come from the Bible. So what do we make of all this kind of different material in the scriptures? Is Jesus another God? Because he definitely speaks about his father as if his father is distinct from himself. Uh, or is the spirit a real person? Uh, or is the spirit just the, like Star Wars, the impersonal fourth, fourth, 
the impersonal force that flows out of the Father and the Son. These are the kind of questions that the early church was wrestling with as they tried to put together all the different material about God from the Scriptures. Is there one God uh, and some kind of demotion in order to two others? Are there two, the Father and the Son, but the Spirit kind of emanates out from them? How do we understand all these kind of things? And that's where Trinity, uh, the language of Trinity and the teaching and understanding of Trinity comes into play. But there are passages in the New Testament which talk about Father, Son and Spirit very combined so that we can see that they're all on an equal footing. And one of those is the reading that we had where Jesus speaks to his disciples and says, go out and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If Jesus wasn't God, that's an incredible statement. To say you should baptise yourself in my name and God's. And it's extraordinary. It only makes sense if the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are equally part of the Godhead. Same with the grace that we often say that comes from uh, 2 Corinthians 13. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. You see it there. So, despite the lack of the word Trinity in the Bible, the concept is very clearly there. Uh, Trinity meaning uh, tri, three, unity. Tri-unity, three, one God, three persons. That's what Trinity is getting at. Uh, Now, the language most commonly used by theologians to describe the Trinity, because this is where our language lets us down, is one substance, three persons. That's what the article says. Do you see it there? One substance, three persons. And again, substance is a more technical word. We hear the word substance, and I think of anyway, material or element. But the word is actually referring to essence or being. So it's saying one essence, one being, three persons. In other words, there's one God, one substance, being, essence, but three distinct persons. In other words, and this is very important, within the Godhead there is unity and there is distinction. Unity and distinction. One God, three persons. One, yet Father, Son and Spirit. That's the Trinity. And when God acts, all three persons are involved in that activity. But sometimes each of the persons has their own role. When you think about it in terms of salvation, how does our salvation work itself out? We have peace with the Father through the sacrifice of the Son, and that's applied to the believer by the Spirit. You see, they're all working for the salvation of us, but each of them has slightly different roles. In prayer, the normal way the Bible teaches prayer is that it's to the Father, in the name of the Son, uh, in the Spirit. So one God in substance with three distinct persons. That's what the Trinity is. Now, this is what the Trinity isn't, because sometimes it's when we see the isn't that we understand the is more clearly. Uh, I don't know whether you were brought up on examples or illustrations about the Trinity like I was. I think they've gone out of fashion a little bit more, but um, they're still around a bit. There's two mistakes that you can make with the Trinity. One is that you stress the unity at the expense of the distinction, and the other is the reverse. You, uh, You stress the distinction against the unity. Now, if you're taking notes and you want kind of um, uh, technical names and things, uh, this is either called Sabellianism 
where there's no distinction, it's just good on the one God, Sabellianism or, or modalism, uh, or Arianism, where there's no unity. Wouldn't it be good if you come up with something that's so bad they name a heresy after you? Challenge accepted. <laughs> kind of, uh, these guys came up with something which was so wrong they named heresies after them. So Sibelius taught that the Father, Son and Spirit were really just different names, different manifestations, different modes of the one God. So it was good on the unity but terrible on the distinction. A hundred years after him, Arius comes in and he teaches that Jesus the Son is very distinct from the Father. Indeed, he's subordinate to the Father. Indeed, there was a time when there was the Father but no Son. So he's good on the distinctness but he's lost the unity. They're the two ways that you can muck up the Trinity. But if you muck up either way, you've mucked up God, who he is in and of himself. It's why all those modern illustrations today don't work. I was told once that um, uh, the Trinity was like me being a son, a father and a husband. That's like the Trinity. Does that work? If you say no, why not? Sibelianism. Oh, Mark. Is Mark right? Yes, never mess with Mark. It's Sibelianism. Because it's, got, it's good on the unity, right? It's, it's all me. Uh, but the Father, the Son and the it, it's no good on the distinctness because I'm still the same person. Yet it's quite clear that the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Spirit. So it breaks down in that way. Another uh, example they used to use all the time was H2O, if you can remember the H2O. H2O can be ice, it can be water or it can be steam. So there's the Trinity. It's all H2O, but it could be steam, ice or water. Does that work? No, Sibelianism again. Because the ice can't be ice and steam. It's either one or the other. It's not like God changes. Oh, now I'm the Father. Woo, now I'm the Son. Woo, now I'm the Spirit. It doesn't work. Sibelianism. I hope you realise I'm not trying to be... Anyway, I'll get up. <coughs> I, I want to be reverent to the Lord. I... Another one I heard was God's like an egg. So an egg has got, it's one egg, one substance, but three parts. Shell, white and yolk. One egg, who, who thinks that's a good one? No, why not? Arianism. Arianism, does that make sense? The distinction's right, yolk, uh, white, shell, but the shell is not that Jesus is God. The spirit is God. The shell is not the egg. Do you see how it all breaks down? You've probably heard of others, uh, the three-leaf clover. I even heard someone describe the Trinity once uh, like three-in-one shampoo. Uh, <laughs> friends, when you, you're trying to sum up the glory of the, our creator by hair cleaning product, we've kind of probably gone into a bad... None of them adequately sum up the Trinity. None of the illustrations stack up. Some of them sound good initially, but until you sit down and really reflect on it, uh, it kind of breaks down. But can I suggest something uh, humbly this morning? Don't let it bother you that God is more complex than shampoo. And I mean that seriously. Don't be concerned that God is beyond, our, at one level, our words and our concepts because he is beyond us. Now, I don't want to say that we don't know truths about God that he's given us and that we need to hold on to. I'm not trying to say, oh, you can't know anything about God. He's so distant and other. No, no, no. He's told us things. But if I can't understand all of God, I don't mind about that. 
I'm glad that I can't fathom him based just on tripe, petty illustrations. I rejoice that you and I, the God that we follow, can't be summed up just by a, a limited understanding. I love it that the creator is beyond the actual creation. That should be the case. We cannot fathom everything to do with the Lord. And I, I love that. Who wants, to, who wants to give up their life and follow someone who's just a little bit better than we are? We follow someone unimaginably greater. I don't understand how the Trinity works. I don't understand how one God and three persons operates, but that's fine. I don't understand Bluetooth. I still use it. The Trinity is not just unity, not just distinction, but it's both. One God, three persons. And I want to, I, I want to wrap up. I, I want to finish, though, by briefly highlighting one of the great uh, practical implications of the Trinity for us. Because the truth is that uh, knowing and understanding the Trinity doesn't just help us know and understand God, it helps us know and understand ourselves as people made in the image of God. And what the Trinity shows us, and uh, I want to get deep here for a moment, is that because God is the ultimate reality, God's the source of everything, he's the ultimate reality, um, <clears throat> therefore he's the source and ground of all reality. Therefore, reality for human beings equals, in part, relationship. Think about that for a moment. Because God in, in and of himself is a relational being. He's not just one, he is Father, Son and Spirit and he relates within himself. Then you and I as human beings are made in the image of God and therefore are made to be relational. It's part and parcel of who we are. Uh, we've been made in God's image and so we've been created for relationship and we are most human, fully human in our relationships with God and with other people. So what I'm saying is that a human being in and of themselves is an abstraction, it's not complete, it doesn't work. You have been created for relationship, relationship with God and relationship with other people. And you can see this. When God created the world, we're told that he kept uh, giving a performance indicator on, on how it was going. It was good. It was good. And at the end he says it was very good. But we're told one thing was not good in the creation. What was it? Not good for man to be alone. And we know that that's true today. We break relationships to cause punishment. When a child misbehaves, they're sent to quiet time by themselves. We break relationship, that's the punishment. When a prisoner misbehaves in jail, they get sent to solitary confinement. Away, no relationships, that's a punishment. Nothing is more painful, nothing causes more heartache or more problems or depression than loneliness, isolation, broken relationships. That's why we, you know, in our Western culture we don't get time off for uh, a broken heart, but it can be just as devastating as a physical sickness. What, why is that? Because we've been made in the image of the triune God, the God who's in relationship with himself. We're created for relationship. That's why today the selfishness, the self-absorption, the individualism of our society goes right against who God is and what he wants from his people. They're fundamentally at odds. It's why all the... I mean, you see it all the time in the West, this kind of call of I need me time and it's sticking up for my rights and it's all about my self-identity at the expense of anyone else. I don't care about uh, defining myself in with anyone else. It's just about me. That is just against how we're created. 
to selfishness which is so destructive for us as human beings. If that's not combined with, you know, of course we're concerned with ourselves, but if that's not combined with a love for the Lord and a love for his people, it's chaos. We are people for whom the greatest commandment is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. That's our number one purpose and that is relationship. And the second one is what? To love our neighbour as ourselves. And yet somehow, in today's modern world, we've turned those two commandments round to I need to love myself more. Shame on us. Shame on us. Because the more selfish we are and self-absorbed, the more we're rebelling against the way God's created us to be and who we are. It's an indictment. Our relationship with God is to be first in all areas, not personal ambition, not self, you know, any of those kind of things, and then love for others. So one of the things I'd like to ask you to do this morning, in the light of the Trinity, is to think about your relationships your relationships with the Lord, your relationships with other people. That's why restoring human relationships is so important. That's why there's something so healing where when we know we've wronged someone else, we go before them humbly and we say, I'm so sorry for what I did, genuinely sorry, and restoration is made. It's why it's so powerful when someone comes and asks you for forgiveness when you can give it to them because relationships is part and parcel of how the Lord has made us. And so can I ask you to think about your human relationships? That's why the Bible spends so much time telling us about how we're to relate. Have you ever thought about that before? So much of it is about how we're to relate to the Lord, how much we're to relate as husbands and wives, as parents, as children, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as slaves and masters. It's it's about relationships because it's not just that we relate, it's that we relate the Lord's way. Because in all those areas it's possible for us to relate selfishly or sinfully and the Lord wants us to relate the right way. But it's because relationship is at the heart of the God that you and I follow. And we see it in communion. Again, I don't know whether you've ever thought about that, but communion, we share communion as we take the bread and the wine. We remember our perfect relationship with the Lord because of what Jesus has done for us. And we do it in fellowship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, signifying the relationship we have. It's why one of the, the biggest signs of a broken relationship is when a group of Christians say, we cannot take communion with you anymore. They are saying that there is something fundamentally so broken in the relationship now that cannot happen because communion is a picture of the relationships that we have. And so this morning, uh, it's a big topic, Trinity. I'm sorry we're just kind of skating over the top of it. But I want to encourage you that our God is greater than we can fathom. But he's told us things that we need to know. And one God, three persons. The relational aspect of God has huge implications for you and I and the way we live in his world uh, in his ways. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the chance to think on a really heavy topic. And I I do pray that um, uh, the things that we've thought about today may may penetrate not just our heads but our hearts and our lives. I pray that they would lead to, as I said before, a deeper love for you, a deeper understanding of you, and that it would impact the way that we relate, not just to you but to those around us as well. Father, we thank you for the the gift of relationships. And we pray that we may honour you as we live those relationships out. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.